All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts and occasionally adjacent combat sports, if I'm feeling like talking about any of them. My name is Robert Winfrey. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, on the agenda this evening, we're back in the swing of things. UFC is running a bunch of consecutive events. I'm sure that'll be fine. So we will be reviewing last night. You'll see on ESPN 46. Pretty meh card. It was all said and done. Pretty meh. Uh, We will be previewing UFC 289, which is kind of a one-fight pay-per-view, and it ain't the main event. Uh, So we'll touch on that. Then news of the week. Not a ton of news, but we'll talk about some stuff. Uh, Again, we'll talk about some stuff. So that's what we've got. All right, if you could please... Anything to do to help the product, like, comment, subscribe. That's the usual thing. Uh, share. Please share. If you've done you know, that, sharing the show with other people on the social media network of your choice, telling people in your personal life, anything you can do to help out the show, much appreciated. Uh, lost my train of thought. I, you know, this is what happens. This is what happens when you switch up the order of your boilerplate. Right, suddenly it all goes wonky in your head. So any and all of that is much appreciated. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Went over the agenda. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot of preamble today, so let's go ahead and jump into it. I mean, we got a lot to get through. I mean, we got stuff to talk about. So let's let's get into this and let's try not to be here for 90 minutes, shall we? I think that would be good. Uh, UFC on ESPN 46 from last night. Main event. Did not agree with this one. Amir Albazi defeats Kai Kara France via split decision. There were 48-47s, uh, one for Kara de France, one for Albazi. I was 48-47, Kara de France. Didn't seem like this was that hard to score to me either, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. So, here's the real kicker about this. Um... <sighs> I've tried really hard not to be as negative as I used to be. I'm going to be negative here, and I just hope you'll all indulge me for a little bit. Um, I was not terribly impressed with either guy for the majority of this fight. There was a lot of circling. Albazi with a... He's got pretty good grappling, but I don't know if this was an issue of distance management entirely, or if... His fence wrestling was not up to par here. He spent a lot of time just holding Carlo France against the fence. Maybe he thought the takedowns would come easier. I don't know. But he struggled to find them. When he did get them, he... There was a bit in, I think it was the third round. Um, It was the third round where he got Carlo France down, got his back, and held that for a while. Um... His back take was pretty good. His back control is solid. He threatened with the choke once. It it could have got hairy. Uh, didn't quite develop into a into a near fight ender, but he, it was something where Carafons had to really kind of mind his p's and q's. Um. Then. No, but he just. He did after the after the fight. He was like, yeah, I can stand with anybody. And no, no, I don't think he can. Um, 
Yeah, I, just, I was not. Like, I was a little bit higher on Albazi after his last couple of wins. Like on his upside, I didn't. Again, was not in love with his performance here. And the, did Okai counter France? You know, if you're the guy defending your spot, um, you need to be. You need to know what's on the line here, my man. Uh, and he fought. Ah, man, how do I say? The first, like, three rounds, it felt like he was just doing the same thing. Over and over and over and over again and expecting different results. And it's not really until round four. I mean, four he comes out and... The fact that... Ugh, I'll yell about the scoring in a minute. So four he comes out. He's a little bit more authoritative. Round five, um, his best round by a mile, actually. Uh Really upped the tempo in the fourth round. Really got things going. Landed better. Um, round four, round five was pretty good for him. He closed very strong. Um, but he kind of gave the second round away. Uh, which I didn't understand at all. Now the third, again, the third, like, Albazi took that third round. And, and credit to him. Much as I wasn't impressed by the total performance, he won that round definitively, and he did it through just good fighting. But he didn't... I don't... It just felt like he didn't wake up until kind of the fourth and fifth round. And that's a bad way to fight, man. Look. You can argue all the live long day about what a... Let, let me put it like this. If you score this fight as a whole instead of round by round, this is Carter France's fight. I wouldn't say walking away, but it's not. That's not really disputable. But again, I've come out and I've said I tend to think that's probably a better way to score MMA is as a whole rather than round by round. Doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. It's not. Um, that had that has led to its own issues from time to time. If you look at, um, it's not like uh, places and promotions that use that scoring method have some perfect history. Like Pride had its share of wonky decisions, and I don't just mean like hometown stuff. I mean they had some head scratchers. Everybody knows it. It's okay, but. Part of the reason the round-by-round -round scoring system works in boxing is the number of rounds. I, if you're going to score round-by-round, -round, I think you need a lot of rounds. Uh, both mathematically, in the interest of fairness to the competitors, like there's a lot of reasons for it, but you know, the fact that you've if you're scoring six rounds of boxing, eight rounds of boxing, ten rounds of boxing, scoring round by round is the way to go because you're keeping track at the appropriate intervals. Okay, who won? Who won? Who won? Uh, when the most rounds you ever get in MMA is five? I don't know. I just, I'm not sure this is the best way to go about it, but that's a slightly different discussion. Because whatever I think... You the scoring the methodology that is employed here and that you have to be aware of if you're competing is you have to 
look, Dominic Cruz did not pioneer this. I'm going to reference him because he's probably the most public facing, one of the more well-known guys who's kind of come out and said, by the way, you have to think about it this way. He did not initiate this or originate it. Other coaches have said this for a while. But you have to think about each round as its own fight because nothing that came before matters and nothing that happens after matters. You don't get extra points in round three for having a good round two. You don't start round three with some kind of advantage, scoring-wise. You might have an advantage physically if you've done something, but that doesn't matter for the scoring purposes. The scoring purposes is who won what round. And then nothing that happened in that previous round matters at all to scoring the next round, to scoring the next round. If you look at the stats on the... I'm going to yell about the judging in a minute on this fight, I promise. Because if you look at the stats, if you look at the overall stats, Carter Franz kind of blew Albazi out of the water. But whenever they show those stats, like for the broadcast purposes, they say, I mean, commentary even thought that Carter Franz won this, for the record. But you, when they show up, you know... We're in the middle of round two, and -and so-and-so's landed 40 significant strikes. The other guy's landed 20. That's not that round. Like, that's fight to date. And for the purposes of commentary and statistical analysis and whatnot, that's useful. For the purposes of scoring, it's not. We're scoring round two. Nothing that happened in round one matters. You have to win each individual five-minute fight. Is kind of how you have to think about this in some respects. So, yeah, there's that. And when you break it down like that, I still think Carter France won. Again, I look, man, three to two it does not mean this was a blowout. But, um. There was one, so Sal D'Amato, the semi-sentient can of tomato soup they stick cage side for this crap, he scored the first three rounds for Albazi. I don't agree, but I can accept there is an argument for Albazi in the first. Don't agree with it. I think to get there, you have to significantly overvalue pointless control along the cage that led to nothing right if you really overvalue all that stalling you can get to albazi eking out the first don't agree personally don't think it's supported by the scoring criteria but if you overvalue that then okay maybe you can make the argument you're not going to convince me i don't think you're going to convince most reasonable people but there it is the fact that sal d'amato had the slightly more defensible of the bad scorecards here should tell you something about what I'm about to say because Chris Lee, this, he must have mailed in this scorecard, man. Somebody from Abu Dhabi sent him a check. He turned this thing in a year ago. Like, he gave Albazi the fourth round. This is utterly ridiculous. Utterly. Let me tell you something about that fourth round, if you don't mind. So if we talk about what happened per round, round four, 
Um, Kai Carter France outlanded Amir Albazi. Total strikes, 29-7, to and had the only takedown of the round. Now, if those seven strikes from Amir Albazi had resulted in a near finish, maybe I could see the argument. Didn't happen. I do not understand the control time for however much you want to value. This was 11 seconds for Carter France, 23 seconds for Albazi. I believe Albazi's was all along the fence. If outlanding your opponent by 22 strikes, dude, he landed, Kai Carter France landed. As, almost as many strikes in round four as Albazi threw. He threw 31, Albazi did. Carter France almost landed that many. He threw 67. If outlanding your opponent by that much and getting the only takedown of the round doesn't win you a round anymore, I don't know what we're doing here. Like, it just it makes no sense. Look, while we're, for the record, while we're talking about this, because round one, I think, is the reasonable disputed round, reasonable in air quotes here, um, Kai Carter France outlanded Albazi numerically, uh, 20 to 12 total strikes, and then significant strikes was 13 to 6. He also threw almost twice as many uh, significant strikes. Albazi had, what, about a minute of control time in that round? Again, this is just clinch work on the fence. That doesn't actually lead to damage. I don't even think he threw many clinch strikes. I was just holding him there. So, yeah, Chris Lee giving that fourth to Albazi is freaking criminal. That's, that's just ridiculous. That's just completely ridiculous. Uh... But this is where we've landed, I guess. Nobody knows what's going on. Uh, I this this just doesn't make sense to me, man. How did we get here? How did we get here to the point where? Look, I yelled about this years ago. Back when the narrative. This was a thing that would be said constantly in MMA was, quote, never leave it in the hands of the judges. Dana White liked to trot this out because Dana White likes finishes for somewhat obvious reasons. But everyone kind of took this as some rallying cry. And I, I it struck me that uh, like nine years ago, I've doing this for a long time. It struck me then that, wait a minute, all we're doing is admitting that a giant segment of what we do here in this sport is fundamentally broken. That's what we're saying here. You say never, you say don't leave it up to the judges. You're saying, we're all admitting here, this very, very, very important aspect of combat sports doesn't work. And we're all just going along with this? What's going on here? Now, as I've said before, I also happen to know the answer to this particular problem. 
Well, so I know the answer to that question. I don't know how to fix the problem necessarily because that's a little bit more involved. But the, you know, how did we get here? Why did we get here? Say it with me, everybody. Government bureaucracy. I'm not saying state athletic commissions are bad. Their institution was probably a necessity at the time it was kind of brought around. Not saying they're bad. I am saying I'm not sold on how well they work. They are most athletic commissions, I'm gonna say most, are populated by bureaucrats either interested only in entrenching their own power within that system or associates or acquaintances of people at the state level of power, usually the executive branch, looking to do something or get paid off for... Paid off implies bribery in a way that is not necessarily fair here. So, let me rephrase. Most of these people are appointees. So, that, like... And this will vary state to state because each state is set up a little bit differently. But since we're talking Nevada, like the Nevada State Athletic Commission is appointed pretty much by the governor. And that's kind of the only way to get rid of them. If they don't resign voluntarily, it needs an order from the governor to get rid of them. That's so We're dealing with very entrenched power figures here. They don't go away very easily, even if they suck at their jobs. And they don't like, a lot of them, a lot of them might have higher aspirations. So saying, hey, I served as the chairman of the Nevada State Athletic Commission for from this year to this year. Looks pretty good on a resume. Please hire me in the private sector. Especially if I'm able to do a little back scratching for you on the regulatory side of things. This is one of, I promise I'm not going on a long rant here about this, but... This is somewhat endemic of, how do I say this? Especially here in America. Let me limit this to the American sphere. There's probably some Canadian overlap, but for the sake of only mostly speaking about what I know. A lot of the American political system, when you hear people talk about, quote unquote, the elites, you know, what does it mean? Well, it tends to go something like this. You know, what does it again? What does it mean to be part of "quote unquote" the elite, the the ruling class, so to speak? Those tend to be the people that go to a, uh, a higher education facility, one of the bigger ones. Usually, will do either an internship or uh, some kind of other uh, or, or doctoral thesis if they want to go all the way to doctorate. At, so they'll get entrenched in the academic world. They will then do postgraduate degrees. So like, again, po so more than associates, you're getting like masters, more than bachelors, right? So associate, bachelors, masters, doctorate. You move on from again, kind of the uh, bachelor's program. If you want to get your masters and whatnot, then they'll go study and they'll do internships and whatnot at think tanks, usually. Occasionally, um, other major corporations. And then they'll either stay there, especially if you do the think tank thing. 
you stay there for a while and then some political person that you know or is a friend of your friend because these are somewhat smaller circles uh, attains a degree of political authority whether this is you know congressman senator uh, governor things like that and you as an attack as an being attached to them in some capacity you've done something for them you helped with the campaign you, whatever it happens to be you then you then get appointed to a government position and you know maybe it's something that matters maybe it's something that doesn't maybe it's bigger maybe it's smaller again there's a few different things you can go here and different states allow different things to be appointed rather than elected and then you stay there for a while and while you're there part of the government regulatory body and most of the appointed things are regulatory in nature you gain contacts in the private sector you do maybe you I'm not even necessarily saying you do anything shady. Let's just say you become acquainted with another company that is trying to get something through and you help them navigate the process. And even if everything's all above board, so let's leave off necessarily the discussion of, again, the shady stuff. You then when your guy gets out of office and you potentially get replaced, you go to this corporation that you did that you were uh, at adjacent to or did work with and say hey can i have a job then they hire you and then you stay there in the private sector earning a good chunk of money until you get someone else who's elected and then you reappoint like and you just you cycle through this like that's kind of what we're talking about and that's what a lot of the nevada state athletic commission is composed of it's people i mean mark ratner was on it for a long time uh like the year before, very close to the Fertitas buying the UFC, um, Lorenzo Fertitta was on the athletic was on the Nevada State Athletic Commission. In fact, I'm pretty sure the only reason he resigned was so he could buy the UFC. That, again, that might, I'm not sure of the timing of that, um, but which is to say he might have actually bought the UFC before he resigned. But yeah, who knows? But again, we're seeing that. I mean, the Fertitas are weird anyway because you know they were billionaires long before the UFC. So who knows? But you get these government bureaucratic agencies filled with people who don't actually care about the job they're trying to do. They were promised that, hey, if I get elected and you help me get there, I'll appoint you to something. Hey, sure, you can be sanitation director. as a, Or you can be the part of the, the state athletic commission or in any of these things. And then they just kind of want to ride it out, have a cushy job. I mean, cushy is something of a put air quotes around that if you want to but they have a secure job again depending on which state we're talking about getting rid of these people is like pulling teeth and as long as they avoid major scandal or controversy and i mean major then they get to put on their resume what they did and it looks good and maybe they again maybe they meet people you know there's a lot of very important uh, people who try to do business with different athletic commissions. And it's all, again, this big kind of quasi-incestuous mixing of people. And it never really, again, like if you, if you want to have a fun exercise, you can actually trace some of these relationships and it just forms a big circle. You know, the tree doesn't branch all that often. And... The big thing they all like to avoid is rocking the boat. They don't like change. They don't like admitting they're wrong. 
So if you have a bunch of old judges who are no longer competent, but you don't want to deal with the fallout of getting rid of them, because that would admit potentially in some small part that something is not working right with the bureaucracy, they're just not going to do it. They're not going to... When was the last... Uh, certain members of the media are on this kick. This was technically I'm part of the MMA media, but like that's the mo only in the most academic and pedantic of senses. But they... Hey, how about we talk to the judges? How about we talk to the referees? How about they go to the post-fight press conference and have to answer questions? And they don't want to do it, so they the athletic commission doesn't make them. I am partially convinced... And this might be just a touch like quasi-conspiracy theorist of me, and so I apologize. That's a, but I'm half convinced the athletic commissions know like these people are idiots. And if we let them speak publicly, people are going to realize the emperor has no clothes. Now that's not as that's not as true for referees. Most referees in MMA, especially the high-end ones, they're again they don't do like full-on interviews or press conferences on the regular, but. They're not exactly shy about saying, here's what I thought, here's what was going on. Like, that happens. Uh, you know, Mark Goddard's pretty active on various social media platforms, and he's an excellent referee. Uh, Herb Dean's been up and down, but again, you can, like, you can find them on, you can find them talking about this stuff. It's, the referees don't seem to mind as much. They also don't seem to mind admitting when they're wrong. Like, most refs, if they get a call objectively wrong, will just say, yeah. I screwed that one up, and we're all trying to be better. And, again, like, I'm fairly certain that if you stuck, you know, Dave Moretti, who's something like 80, or you made Sal Tomato stand in front of a, uh, a bunch of microphones and answer questions, everyone's going to realize, oh, again, these people are idiots. And these are the people deciding things, and they don't want to... Here's the other problem with this, and this is a problem that I think is going to become more of an issue very, very rapidly, believe it or not. Um, part of the reason all these same judges get used is there's not really a crop of new ones to replace them. And that... And you know what? I'm... This is one of those things. Occasionally, especially now, um, you will see more and more advertisements for jobs that you look at, and even if you're... Um, let's say you're just not in a job you really like. There's a lot of advertisement for jobs that you just look at and go, yeah, no. And I'm not... That sounds like I'm being horribly dismissive of, like, wide swaths of professions. I'm not knocking people who do the following jobs, okay? Let me be abundantly clear about this. I'm not insulting the individuals who do these jobs. Unless I happen to know you specifically and know you suck at your job, in which case, yeah, I'll tell you that. But there's a lot of advertisement... Uh, you can probably find within a five-minute drive of wherever you are right now at least one, if not two, fast food joints hiring. There's a decent chance you can find um, 
you find grocery uh, a big retail store that's hiring. And if you're here, one of the big ones I see all the time, I see banners outside of um, public schools like, hey, we need bus drivers or attendants on school buses. And I just can't help but point and laugh. I have nothing but respect for the people who do those jobs. I'm not insulting anyone who does it. Not a one of them. But I know what they I know what you're going to pay me and I know how miserable the experience is going to be because I'm going to be a government employee, especially if I'm doing like school bus stuff, like you're an employee of the state at that point. And that's going to be miserable because getting Getting appropriate wage raises or whatnot is hard. Getting, you know, which potential union you might have to be, you might be attached to becomes hard. It's it's just a mess. It's just a mess. And I think it was Luke Thomas who told this story. Because uh, he called, he was like, um, one of the worst decisions you'll ever see in MMA. He was providing commentary for it. It was uh, Mike Easton and Chase Beebe. And utterly baffling decision to give that to Mike Easton. Utterly baffling. Makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and he, on commentary, said, after it was announced, like, no, this is, like, he buried the decision. He just buried it. Well, again, he was on commentary, and some athletic commission personnel, because this would have been uh, somewhere in, in uh, D.C., Maryland, uh or like northern like somewhere in that area and i forget where it was specifically but one of the commission personnel came up after the fact to him and handed him the application like you can fill this out and you can be a judge if you think it's so easy now one you don't need to be a highly trained official to know how bad that mike easton and uh, bb decision was it was just bad was it chaser carson hang on that's actually going to bug me now gotta look that up um Let me have a look at that. Which one was it? Yeah, uh, Chase, I was right. Yeah, the UWC was Virginia. It was Fairfax, Virginia. Um, yeah, terrible decision. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> uh, but, so I, I just put it to any and all of you. Like, I could go, I could try to get, I could probably get certified to be a, an MMA judge here in the state of Utah, where I live. It, I'd have to look it up, but I'm. Sh- it's not terribly complicated a procedure. It's just, what's the incentive? Like you're gonna go and you're gonna get paid very little money. And when you start out, you start out at the regional level, so you're gonna be watching regional level MMA. Uh, for, then again, you're going to commit, a, like, as many places as actually also run on, like, Saturday evenings when I would, when I'm supposed to be covering UFC events, like, it's just not really feasible for me. So there, but, so we're dealing with top end that is atrophying and wasting away in terms of judges. And there's not really a rising group of kind of talented people in that space to take over. The, I mean, I remember a handful of years ago when, uh, like, 
Oh, which Almeida was it? Which Almeida was it? It wasn't. It wasn't Bouchesha. He's actually still. Um, wasn't Tomas. I want to say it was Marcus, but again, not not Bouchesha, who's Marcus Almeida. Pretty sure at least it was. It was a different Marcus Almeida. Who retired from MMA and became a judge, and this was around the time that like a lot of bad decisions were happening. People were like, "Yay, former fighter! This will help things." And I haven't seen his name pop up too often. So you you're then trying to again, you also like trying to fight the seniority of you know who's who gets called up. Like you you do have to spend time proving you can do the job at the lower level. Before you can potentially, you know, judge major fights, but it's it's a lot of time, it's a lot of it's a lot of investment, and not a lot of people are willing to do it because there's not a lot of incentive to do it. And as a result, we get stuff like this with Saldamato still being there and still sucking, and then Chris Lee going, yeah, round four, Albazi, whatever. I might actually respect these yahoos more if they just admitted that, yeah, we're kind of drunk. And we just have, like, a board on a wall that has different scorecards, and we just throw darts at it, and that's what we turn in. Like, if there was at least some honesty involved in this process. But, you know, here we are. So, not a great fight. Picked up a little bit towards the end, but bad decision. Like, I'm not... Yeah. Um, not the best way to end the night, and I talked about that for 30 minutes, so, yeah, let's move on. Um, co-main event, featherweight, Alex Caceres defeated Daniel Pineda via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. This was your fight of the night. No argument from me here. Um, Caceres has a pretty good first round, again, fighting long, doing some decent clinch work. Um, Pineda pulls guard. Pineda just really wanted to grapple with him, and Pineda had a pretty active guard, actually, was... Pretty offensive-minded and using motion to create sweeps and scrambles if he couldn't grab the submission. Had a pretty decent armbar attack and then a triangle attack. Um, the, the triangle, uh, that would have been real nice, but he couldn't get to the legs. Part of the reason you want to, there's several reasons you want to hook the legs um, when you do the triangle. One of them is to turn your body to clamp things down. The other is to prevent them from backing out, prevent them from slamming you, a lot of stuff like that. So he had good leg position for the triangle choke, but Caceres was able to get his legs away from being grabbed and kind of start motion and shake his way free. Um, so that was pretty good. Uh, I didn't. I was fine with Caceres taking it, but there was actually an argument for Pineda in the in the first. I think second round. Or am I confusing that round? Um, second round is much more Pineda's round. Um, gets a takedown kind of near the end. Good passing. Pretty good ground and pound. Not great. Needs to work on that a little bit. Uh, but he ended the round like full mount, just uh, landing some pretty good elbows. Third round, Caceres comes back and just takes the round. He hurts Pineda pretty early with a body kick. And Pineda never quite gets back. That, like gets himself back to where he was before that kick landing. That was a hard one. I uh, hurt him to the body a couple of times. Um, good win for Caceres. Uh, he said after the fact he wants to fight people ranked above him. That's probably fair. Uh, tough, tough loss for Pineda, but he's also I forgot how old, he's pretty. He's 37. Like that's 
that's a big consideration here, especially at featherweight. Uh, so again, solid win for Caceres, and he probably should fight up now. I mean, his recent record is pretty darn good. His only loss recently was to Sadiq Youssef. Like, he's probably due fighting instead of fighting someone ranked below him or unranked. He's probably due a guy ranked above him next. Uh, lightweights. So Jim Miller was supposed to fight Jared Gordon. Um, I have to yell again about the incompetence of people here because Dana White got asked about this um, and threw Jared Gordon under the bus. See, if you'll recall, Jared Gordon uh, fought not that long ago. He fought Bobby Green on April 22nd. So we're a little over a month. Uh, yeah, just a little over a month. And <laughs> uh, they booked him for this fight. And if you'll recall, again, that, that fight with Bobby Green ended after they banged heads and then Gordon got knocked out. We all kind of, a lot of people, I didn't. Bad on, shame on me, man. Shame on me for not realizing the, uh, the proximity to, between these two fights. It's, just, it's all kind of a blur sometimes, but that's on me. A lot of people went, hey, wait a minute. Didn't Gordon fight just like three, four weeks ago and didn't he just get violently not, like, wasn't there a thing there? How is he, we're okay with this? Then Gordon, like, I think the pre-fight, pre, like something before the fight, brought it up and then suddenly everyone goes oh right um yeah you're not medically cleared so they brought in jesse butler on short notice i'll talk about the fight in a second short fight not a lot to talk about but afterwards dana was asked about it and he said man jared gordon what are you lying for you know you're not a doctor you should have just like you don't get to decide if you're all right like you idiot he was wasn't that in freaking vegas hang on I'm going to double-check this. Yeah, that was at the stupid Apex. Right? So, four weeks ago... Hang on, let me do the math on this. I want to make sure I'm accurate here. So again, April 22nd. April 22nd, so... One... Two, three, four, five... Okay. Call it six. Six weeks ago. Six weeks ago, at a fight you promoted in your venue, in the same city, same commission, dude got knocked out. And it's on him to disclose that, yes, yeah, six weeks ago I got knocked out? You all sanctioned it! You were there, in theory. Maybe not in practice, or maybe you were there physically, but you were not there if you all decided like the matchmakers should have known better the promoter should have known better the commission should have known better but here you are going no this is jared gordon's fault screw you man he's the last person on earth who should have been who, who should be criticized for this the last person every theoretical safety measure and regulatory body in this chain of events, failed him categorically. But it's his fault. 
again. Screw you. Anyway, Jesse Butler steps up on short notice, and Jim Miller knocks him out in 23 seconds because Jim F. and Miller. Um, good knockout. This was a good knockout. Um, they were uh, open stance because Miller's southpaw. Come out, probe a little bit with kicks, then Miller lands a pretty decent left, backs Butler up, um, hits him with a left, then he catches him with a better left and butler a little bit awkward fires a right hand trying to throw back he's not moving his head he's not moving his upper body and if you think head movement is important in same stance fighting you're closed it's more important in open stance especially as you get closer because there's because there's less physical body obstructing the power hand coming to the danger zone he doesn't move his head. Miller ducks under his right hook and then ends him with a left, lands a follow-up that was unnecessary, but I kind of get why it happened, given how he fell. Just Jim Miller, 38 years old, 40-some-odd fights in the UFC, 25 wins, still out here catching bodies. Yeah, he'll be 40 this year, actually, Jim Miller. Uh, he's been in the UFC since what? Eight. Since 2008. He's been in the UFC. Uh, and old man strength out here. Um, said after the fact, you know, these young guys scare me. I kind of want to fight with guys I'm fans of. And I, he wants to fight. His big goal right now at the moment, I think he's fighting at UFC 300. Because he'd be the only one who was on all three. He was on UFC 100, was on UFC 200. Um, he and Brock Lesnar are the only fighters to be on both 100 and 200. And he wants to be the only one on all three of the centennial cards. The century cards, rather. And you just kind of half know the UFC is going to ask Brock to come back and fight at UFC 300 just to screw with him a little bit. <laughs> Brock might not do it, but, like, you know, like, that's on the table. And Miller still being there, still getting wins, you know. Dude, if Jim Miller's not one of your favorite fighters, I don't know what to tell you. That dude has been... Somebody mentioned this. Like, it's one thing for guys like Randy Couture or Damian Maya to have the, this kind of crazy longevity. Because how they fought, and I don't mean to say that Randy never had a great fight, but look at how they fought. They were very kind of damage-averse. They were a lot of control as much as possible. Uh, mitigate how much comes back at me. Which is a fine way to fight. I'm not knocking it. But then you got Jim Miller. who's was like, no, I've been, in par- I've been part of, like, three or four of the best fights you might find. Dude, if you haven't seen... For any newer fans who might not have seen some of the following fights, allow me to recommend. Um, his fight with Matt Wyman from 2008. That was actually a pretty darn good one. Um, the Ludwig fight didn't last long. His win over Glayson Tebow was pretty nice. Um, he, the fight over Charles Oliveira was a little too short. Uh, his fight with Kamal Shalarus. The loss to Benson Henderson, that was a darn good fight. Um, dude, his fight, UFC 155 with Joe Lozon. Um, that's one of the best fights you'll ever see. Especially if you don't mind some bloodshed. There's some blood there. <laughs> um, 
And some of these losses that he had were still pretty darn good. Um, yeah, that first fight with Donald Cerrone was pretty good. Uh, his rematch with Lozon's good, and him stopping Gomi a little too short. Um, his loss to Dustin Poirier. This was there. Uh, this was 2017 at UFC 208. That was a darn good fight. Uh, he's just. There was a stretch of time, man, from like what was it? You like 2009 to 2012, 13, Jim Miller. That dude was could not miss. Could not miss action. If Jim Miller was on the card, you had to watch the Jim Miller fight. The man has just been there, done that. And I hope he gets to UFC 300. You know, um, he said he's willing to fight at welterweight on occasion. You know what? To that end, somebody else brought it up. I forget who I saw do it on Twitter. So forgive me for not citing you. I apologize. But if he wanted to go up to welterweight and just have a fun fight... Did Jim Miller and Matt Brown, like, I, I might feel bad for Jim Miller. He's so undersized at welterweight. But if you just want the old man violence, Miller and Brown, like, just two, two genuinely kind of good old boys just getting after. Like, that that might be the ticket. Um, so, yeah, good win for Miller. Uh, flyweight, Tim Elliott defeated Victor Altamirano via unanimous decision. 230-27s, 129-28. Didn't hit the 29-28 here. Um, Elliott, just a better wrestler, better scrambler, more top control. Not the most damaging ground and pound, but, you know, pretty consistent. Um, after the fact, Elliott was kind of down on himself for this performance, and I can understand why. Um, this wasn't his best work. This was... This was a good fight. I don't mean to say otherwise, but if you're going to be hypercritical, and fighters tend to be hypercritical of themselves, like I, I can see where he's coming from a little bit. Um, but, you know, he needed the win. He got it, so good on him. Uh, women's flyweight. Karina Silva taking out Ketlin Souza with... This is listed erroneously as a knee bar. 145 of the first. This was not a knee bar. I don't know what you would call it. So, Silva gets a pretty quick takedown, doing some good work on top, and then drops back for a leg lock. It looks like a straight Achilles lock at first. That's that's the grip she has going, right? Now, usually you use that for a bit of control. You establish control over the knee line. You get the foot where you want it against your body. Then you switch to the heel hook. That's kind of the usual progression here. Because a, a regular Achilles lock... Like, you get someone who really knows what they're doing with it, they can mess you up. But it's kind of rare to find the guys who really, really hurt you with that. This is one of those holds that some of the... I, I apologize for mischaracterizing some of these people, maybe. But you get just, like, the slightly grumpier old guys. They're like, you know, I don't really want to roll with you right now, but... All right, fine. Or, or if they try to, like, quasi-hazing the new guys... They'll just grab one of these and just kind of put enough pressure to make you, to put you in some serious pain. But when you get to the professional level, it's rare you see these finished. Especially if we're, you see them finished more in Sambo because of the shoes. Um, if you're able to put on one of these, like again, these kind of straight ankle locks or Achilles lock, and there's a slight difference between the two. Um... Part of the reason the Sambo guys pull it off so much more often in Sambo is because they have wrestling shoes on. 
and that makes it a lot harder to escape. Um, you very rarely see those pulled off in uh, any sort of barefoot competition, or even just like with rap. So you know, again, straight jujitsu, either gi or no gi or MMA, they're rare. Not impossible, it's, they're rare. But that's the grip she has going. And she doesn't switch to the heel hook. She still has that grip. But what happens is she's got good enough control over the knee line. And uh, she kind of just puts the knee joint of Ketlin Souza against the inside. So this is the outside of, of Souza's left leg against the inside of uh, Silva's right leg. And with enough control over the, the line of the leg, she puts pressure uh, on the knee laterally and with her body kind of leans the knee joint, leans to the side. And you can see something in the knee pop. My hunch would be the ACL. Um, yeah, you, you can see it pops. Uh, Souza taps immediately. You don't see this very often because I, I don't, Again, I don't know what you would call this. I would not call it a knee bar. It's not a knee bar. Knee, bar ex knee bars attack the knee joint by hyperextending it. This was not that. This was lateral pressure, which is why it worked. Uh, you know, the knee joint is not meant to go that direction. The fundamental premise of you know, submission grappling being, oh, this is, this is not supposed to go that way. Let me move it that way. But... It's just a reminder, man, you got to be real careful of your knees in these positions. This was not a traditionally dangerous spot. Um, you don't see this type of injury occur from this position very, very often. It's, you know, I'm not saying never, I'm saying rare. And if you're not mindful of, again, of your knee line, of where the pressure from the other guy is, you can find yourself in these kind of spots. Uh, they're they're wonky a little bit. You know, this is um, what might be the equivalent. Uh, you know what this reminds me of? Now that I think about it, if you've never seen the mirror lock, and this is not exactly the same, so you're gonna have to kind of bear with me on this. But if you've never seen the mirror lock, it's uh, named after Frank Mir, who invented it. If you catch your opponent's arm, kind of in your armpits, like pinned between your body, between your arm and your body, right? You want to catch that kind of near the elbow. Then you have, so you've overhooked their arm around the elbow. You grab your own wrist and then you turn your body, your kind of um, interior, anteriorly or internally rotating the elbow joint. Which is not supposed to go that way. Again, you can look up the mirror lock. Um, some guys do it standing. In fact, uh, John Jones badly messed up Glover Teixeira's either his elbow or his shoulder doing this in the clinch, actually. I'm just wrenching on that position. It'll mess your day up, and longer than that. But this kind of reminded me of that in the sense that we've got a lock, we put something between... Uh, something kind of just around the joint, and then we rotate it laterally in a way it's not supposed to go, and something's going to give. So, good win for Silva. Silva seems to be, uh, she's good. 
She's very good. Um, welterweight Ilezu Zaleski Dos Santos defeated Abubakar Nurmagomedov via split decision. These were 29-28s. Um, didn't hate the scorecard for Nurmagomedov. Didn't agree with it, but I don't hate it. This wasn't a very good fight. On the prelims, Daniel Santos defeated Johnny Munoz via unanimous decision. 29-27 across the board. If you're curious how we got to 29-27. Um, Munoz, excuse me, Munoz, Santos was deducted a point in the third round for a groin strike. Now, the worst groin strike was in the first round. The, like, poor Johnny Munoz took a bad kick to the groin, like, 40 seconds into the fight. Less than that, maybe. Just, uh, nasty. So when he got kicked there again in the third round, the ref took a point, And, okay, I can live with it. Um, Munoz kept trying to grapple, but, eh... I don't know. If you want to compare, like, the difference between his bottom guard game and Pineda's bottom guard game is stark. Pineda's methodology is kind of more what you want than what Munoz was doing. At this level, I mean, I'm sure Munoz against the lower level of opposition would have been fine, but you're not fighting lower level opposition, you're in the UFC. Heavyweight, Dontel Mays defeated Andre Arlovsky via TKO. Punches, 317 of the second. Uh, consider this another example in the laundry list of examples of why your jab needs to come back to your head. So, they're standing. Um, were they actually open stance at the moment? I can't remember if Mays was southpaw or if he... I think he was technically orthodox. He was just squared up and had both of his hands down, was kind of leaning his head forward. You've, you've seen fighters do this. That's an inducement. That's him saying, hey, here's my head. Punch me. Arlovsky obliges by throwing a jab. And the problem with what Arlovsky does is he jabs, and then instead of bringing the jab straight back to his hand, you jab should be straight. He jabs and then he loops it. He brings it down and then tries to circle it. People, Some people even wind up their jab. The circular motion feels a little stronger and it's actually a little bit easier for your shoulder to do, to get that little wind up, to make it circular. That's easier on the shoulder joint in some respects. The problem is your jab goes out and then it comes back to defend yourself against the counter. When you loop it, there's nothing protecting your head from the counter. This is what happened here. Mays saw the jab, faded it just a bit, leaned back in, overhand right, clocks Arlovsky in the jaw because Arlovsky's hand is back, is coming back, and it's more like his waist or his, more his waist level than up at the head. Bring the jab back to the head. 90% of the time, as more than that, especially against a power puncher. If you're at heavyweight, that's pretty much everybody. You start looping that jab, giving it kind of the circular trajectory, conserving the momentum. That's why it feels better to do that, because you don't want to... It's harder to stop the momentum and then reverse it than it is to just let it circle all the way back. It's From a, from a physics perspective, it's actually more efficient energy-wise. I don't mean like personal energy. I mean like the, again kinetic energy, the energy you're generating by moving. But it's not sound defensively. Another example of that. Uh, lightweight. Sorry, bantamweight next. Um, John Castaneda defeated uh, Muin Gafarov via unanimous decision. 29-27 across the board. 
you're curious how we got there, Gafarov was deducted a point in round two for headbutting. And I was okay with this point deduction, for the record. Um, Castaneda wins the first. Gafarov goes a little bit crazy in the second. Pushes on bonkers pace. Throws a lot. He's a little bit unhappy. And he, he does kind of lead with the head. like Especially the time they banged heads. You can see him... From his stance, drop the head, load up, and then lunge forward. And his head is actually what's coming forward first, and you can't do that. So he wins the round, but gets the point deduction, so 9-9. And then Castaneda wins the third. We have a pretty good third round, but Gafarov fades a bit down the stretch. Um, Castaneda lands better, takes him down, gets full mount at the very end. Uh, drops some bombs on him from there. Pretty good little fight, actually. Uh, pretty good little fight. In fact, I... If not for Caceres and Pineda, I think this would have been fight of the night. Uh, bonkers second round. So, Castaneda needed the win. Uh, needed that pretty badly, actually, so. Um, not a bad showing for Gafarov, though. Did he replace somebody? No, he didn't. I'm thinking of somebody else. Um, lightweight. Uh, Mohamed Naimov defeated Jamie Malarkey via TKO 259 of the second with punches. Malarkey was fighting well. Um, Naimov was kind of... Naimov was in this, but he was a little bit behind. Then Malarkey misreads the distance, I think. He does a shifting step forward, looking to kind of crash distance and clinch. Unfortunately, Naimov had a little bit more room to retreat. So he takes a little bit of a further step back, doesn't run into the cage. Malarkey gets caught stopping where he thought he was going to be in contact, a little bit squared up, crushed with a right hook. Um, nice comeback from Naimov, and he had a rough first round. I gave that to Malarkey. Now, Malarkey was doing good work in the second, too, but... Uh, it's lightweight, man. You can't... You can't be that lax. Like A mistake like that will get you punished. Um, so Naimov and Gafarov, minor note, both from Tajikistan. There's another guy on the UFC roster from Tajikistan. I forget his name, so forgive me. He debuted, I think it was last year. Um, but they showed like a soccer stadium full of people watching these two guys at 4.30 in the morning, um, local time in Tajikistan. I forget the, I forget the city. It might have been Is Tajik the capital. Uh, whatever. Forgive me. Major city, right? Um, so that is a country that is, um, they're kind of primed. Uh, and they've got some tough guys coming out of this one. Um, again, both Naimov and Gafarov, they didn't look bad, uh, even in loss. Like, those guys, they came to fight. Uh, straw weight, Elise Reed defeated Jin Yu Fry via unanimous decision, 29-20 across the board. First round to Fry, second and third to, um, Reed, as she was able to stop the takedown, stop from being controlled as much. Fry's just a little bit too old and a little bit too slow. Like, she fades pretty badly down the stretch. And it's becoming more and more obvious. She's physically jacked. Like, that, that woman's in very good shape. But her athletic, uh, her dynamism is not there anymore. And that's just eh, the tale of getting older. And I'd say that as a guy closer to 40 than 30. Uh, bantamweight Damon Blackshear defeated Luan Lacerda via TKO um, 354 of the second. They had a 
They had a pretty good grappling exchange in the first round, and that seemed to uh, mess with Lacerda's gas tank. He kept rolling for leg locks, and I'm a, I appreciate a good leg lock. But in the second round, like, he was rolling for one, and Blackshear just figure forward his own legs, <coughs> which is one of the things you can do to defend. Like, you keep that knee bent, you sit on it then, and it's really hard to, for them to get it free and, to, and attack it. And Lacerda just didn't seem to have either the wherewithal or the ability to switch his attack off, to try something else. And he just kind of got stuck down there and pounded out. And kicking everything off, Felipe Linz defeated Maxim Grishin via unanimous decision, 229-28-130-27. Uh, not a good fight. Crappy, low-level light heavyweights. Not a lot to say there. So it was a yeah, pretty mid-card, all things considered. Um, we had a couple of good finishes. Again, the uh, the Achilles lock, whatever it was, from Silva, Jim Miller, winning's always nice. But it was this was a very, very, very forgettable card. Um, your bonuses, I mentioned already, fight of the night went to Caceres and Pineda. No objection. Performances went to Jim Miller and Mohamed Naimov. I would have gone Silva instead of Naimov, personally. But that's just me. Um, you know, you could have pretty much any of the finishes you would have been okay with here. Um, you know, again, either Maze or Naimov or Silva would have been perfectly fine uh, recipients of that bonus. So. Not what I would have done, but not exact. No, no one got screwed here in that respect. So if you want my full report, uh, round by round scoring and thoughts, that's in the MMA Zone of Four and One Mania.com. Give it a read. I appreciate it. Thank you very much as always. All right. Oh jeez, I took way too long on that. Tangents. I have them. So let's move on and let's try not to take forever doing this. UFC 289 this coming Saturday. I believe I spent an hour on that card. Uh, UFC is back on pay-per-view. They are in uh, Canada. They will be in Vancouver at the Rogers Arena. How long has it been since they've been there? Um, this is the... F they haven't been to Canada since um, Cowboy and Gagey in 2019. It was September, so... I'm pretty sure they were scheduled for Canada at some point in 2020, but, you know, pandemic. Um, when was the last time they were in... Vancouver in particular. Let me have a look at that, actually. Uh, so, prior to this one upcoming on the 10th... Oh, that was actually the Cowboy fight. Was, so, that was same arena. So, again, September of 19th, last time they were in Canada, was this particular venue. They have not brought the strongest card here, if we're going to be honest, and... I am honest here. Um, main event, Amanda Nunes and Irene Aldana. This was originally going to be Amanda Nunes and Juliana Pena for some stupid reason. Uh, look, man. Nunes getting an immediate rematch was fine because she had that long stretch of dominance and you didn't actually have a ready-made contender. After Nunes beat the crap out of her in the rematch, like, 
and I mean that, like, the scorecards for that rematch were wide. Let me find those real fast, actually. That was UFC 277. Yeah, there was a 50-45, which was comical. That was a comical gift to Juliana Pena to only have her lose every round 10-9. 50-44 and 50-43. I was either 50-43 or 50-42. Like, there was, that was not a competitive fight. There was no reason for an immediate trilogy fight. Let Pena win a fight. Um, but Pena suffered injured ribs. And in steps, the more deserving contender, Irene Aldana. Aldana, she's four and one in her last five. Three of those are stoppage wins. Um, she did miss weight when she fought Yana Kunitskaya. Not great. Um, she missed weight pretty badly, actually. Yeah, she weighed 139 and a half. Um, don't know what was up with that. Uh, I don't think she'd had prior weight problems. And she had one one kind of issue in Invicta back in like 16. Yeah, she had 136.6. I mean, that is missing, but... Um, yeah, so that was a pretty bad miss, actually. Anyway, she beat Yana. She stopped Macy, uh, Macy Shaslin with that upkick to the body last year. Uh, which is a pretty wild way to finish a fight. Uh, she made waves when she knocked out Ketlin Vieira. Uh, that was December of 19. Then that momentum kind of got derailed by dropping a decision to Holly Holm in October of 2020. She's, again, won two fights since. Um, Amanda Nunes is at the point in her career where she's probably going to lose a bit more often. I'm not going to pick against Amanda Nunes here. However, I, I kind of said this with Juliana Pena. Like, I need a compelling reason. I don't think it's here, but... Dot, dot, dot. Here's what Irene Aldana does very well. She's got a good gas tank for five rounds. She's got pretty good power. Now... That's not going to be as big a deal against Nunes because Nunes hits very, very hard as well. So, Aldana's actually a pretty decent mechanical boxer, uh, certainly for MMA. She's okay in the clinch. She's she's worked a lot on her clinch game, actually. I my hunch is Nunes is going to try to take this fight to the mat fairly quickly. Um, not that she can't win on the feet again. Amanda Nunes is. Pretty darn good everywhere. But I think if Nunes can get on top, like I don't think Aldana's guard game is anything to be terribly feared, especially if you're Amanda Nunes. So my hunch is we're going to see her do a little bit what she did to like Jermaine Durand to me. If you just want kind of a loose example of where I think this is going. So Aldana needs to keep this thing on the feet, try to maintain boxing distance, and it's been a while since Nunes fought someone with power. Because um, Pena kind of wore her out with that weird pace. 
But you know, Jermaine Durand to me had decent power. Um, but she hasn't fought someone with real power since like Chris Cyborg in 2018. Holly's not a big puncher. Again, Jermaine Durand to me, she has some power, but she's actually got a bit more in her legs uh, than her arms. Spencer, not a power puncher. Megan Anderson, not a power puncher. Uh, again, Pena didn't... Pena didn't hurt her with, like, power. It was just kind of, hey, let's fight, like, crazy, and we'll get there. Um, Shevchenko's not a big puncher. Rousey, yeah, Rousey's got some power, but technically speaking, not a great... Not a big puncher. Tate's not a big puncher. There's not a lot of them in the UFC. So, Aldana might be able to keep her honest in that respect. If you want to be a bit more on the romantic side of this, I don't mean like uh, like erotic romanticism. I mean like the romanticism of storytelling. Mexican MMA is on the upswing. You know, Yair is an interim champion. Alexa Grasso is a champion. Brandon Moreno is a champion. Um, there might be enough momentum going. I mean, Grasso and um, Aldana are training partners. Like, they both train out of the same camp. That might be a thing. The you know, Mexican MMA is kind of coming up. It is coming up. So, I'm not saying there's no reason to pick Aldana here. And how old is Nunes? He's only 35. But, you know, 27 fights. Um, and a career dating to 2008. Good grief. Jim Miller's been in the UFC as long as Amanda Nunes has been fighting. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, neither here nor there. Um, that's a lot. Like, that wear and tear catches up to you at some point. And I, I think we're at the point with Nunes where it's going to start catching up. Whether it does here in a definitive enough way to lose the belt again, I don't know. I I don't know. I'm still going to lean towards Nunez. Like, if she'd looked bad in that Pena rematch, I might be, th and still, like, squeaked out a decision, I might feel differently here. But she rebounded pretty solidly from that loss, and... Uh, again, man, you drop, like, that many, you drop a couple of 10-8s on somebody, you're doing something right. So I'm I'm gonna lean towards Nunez, but do not sleep on Aldana here. That's my big thing to warn you. Like, don't sleep on her. Like she might lose. She might even get finished. But she earned the shot here, and she definitely has ways of winning this, especially if Nunez is not defensively responsible. Part of what Juliana Pena did that worked so well was, I mean, one just the dipping jab over and over, and then. The fact that Nunes decided, hey, I'll learn to fight southpaw rather than a couple of tricks to deal with the dipping jab from close stance. Um, if she's not kind of fixed her head position issues and whatnot when she when we, they kind of engage, that's going to be a thing. Aldana has a good jab. So don't sleep on her. That's all I'm saying. I, I'm still picking Nunes, but don't d you discount Aldana's chances of victory here at your own peril. Co-main event, best fight on the card. Charles Oliveira and Benil Dariush. Oh, this is going to be a good one. Um, Oliveira coming off of his first loss since 2017 when Islam Akashev choked him out uh, to win the title. 
Had a real good run going. Dude, that's the best run of Oliveira's career. And I was here for his, like, debut run when, like, hey, he's the he's the man. You guys may not remember this, but he had a run going for a while. Like, his first couple of UFC fights, like, people were high on him. Then he ran into Jim Miller, and he was not ready. I lost to Nick, had the no contest with Nick Lentz, got stopped by Cerrone, dropped to featherweight, won a couple of fights, then got knocked out by Cub Swanson. Oof. Missed weight for that, too. Lost to Frankie Edgar. Uh, had a lot of weight misses at featherweight. Uh, I'm still sad about that, um, the way his fight with Max Holloway went. Because that was a neck injury to um, Oliveira very early in the round, in the first round. But he he's had some he had some rough times, man. But when he got back to lightweight and kind of figured things out, like he beat Will Brooks out of the UFC, if memory serves, lost to Paul Felder, and then never looked back. Just went on a tear before he ran into Islam Makashev. Um, okay, that was for the vacant one. We all kind of considered Oliveira the champion, but whatever. Um, Daryush, on the other hand, he's been... Dude, Benil Daryush hasn't lost a fight since 2018 when he had that short-notice thing with Alexander Hernandez. He's on a good winning streak. He's beaten some really good guys to get here. Has some gnarly finishes along the way, too, man. That knockout of Dracar Close was great. Ditto the Scots Holtzman won. Uh, he beat up Tony Ferguson. I mean, so did Oliveira. Uh, the win over Gamrot was really good. Uh, he's, this is a tough one. I mean, here's the thing about Oliveira. He's only 33, but the man has 43 fights. And again, he's been in the UFC since, he's been in the UFC since 2010. So 13 years, it'll be 13 years in August. And his fighting career dates back to 2008. That's all going to catch up to him at some point. Is it going to be here? Uh, it could be. I don't know how the southpaw thing will work here, because Daryush is southpaw. Daryush is good body kicks. Who? Pr one of the things that um, Islam Akashev did so great against Oliveira was, one, he was very well schooled for what Oliveira does. Like, Oliveira has a handful of tricks that he uses pretty consistently, Makashev was ready for him. Um, but Makashev also did a fair bit of pressuring forward, and Charles Oliveira off the back foot is about half the fighter that Charles Oliveira on the front foot is. Oliveira's a very... He's become a very aggressive fighter. That was, that's what led to a lot of his success, was just, all right, here we go. And come hell or high water, I am coming forward. Daryush is kind of the same thing. Like, which of these two guys chooses to step back first is going to be an interesting one, because if Daryush can force Oliveira back, that plays to, to every strength Daryush has. I should pick Oliveira. That's the more logical pick, but I'm kind of feeling Daryush here. I'm kind of feeling Daryush. So, I might be very wrong, but that's what I'm thinking. Um... Good fight. Best fight on the card. Rest of this card. Welterweights. Mike Malott and Adam Fugit. Um, 
Malat, he's 2-0 in the UFC. He's on, what, a five-fight overall winning streak? Seems like they're still being nice to him after his contender series win. So I'll go with Malat, but he's one of those guys who might have... I mean, he's 31, but he's only got 11 fights. I don't know. He's one of... Again, I'm just not certain he should have been here. I mean, his UFC fights thus far are Mickey Gall and Johan Lanus. I don't know. I expect him to win this one. He's here because he's Canadian. Uh, featherweights, Dan Ige and Nate Landwer. This is actually a pretty good fight. Um, Ige just broke a three-fight losing streak. Now, if that sounds terrible, that's to Chan Sung Jung, I think when Jung was going on his, his run towards fighting for the belt, Josh Emmett and Movsharev Loyev. Top-tier guys, and he knocked out Damon Jackson. Uh, Ige's still very much a, a good featherweight. I believe this is a step up for Landwehr, who last beat Austin Lingo, yeah. Um, by a pretty decent margin, Ige is the best fighter Nate Landwehr's faced. I'm going to lean towards Ige, but... Yeah... Landwehr's defense is kind of a problem, and Ige, Ige can land on you. Gonna go with Ige, but that's a, that's a pretty good action fight there. Middleweights, Marc-Andre Berrio and Eric Anders. I'm not the biggest fan of Marc-Andre Berrio, but Eric Anders has shown a propensity for gassing. Um, he beat Kyle Dawkins his last time out, but... Uh, Anders has kind of plateaued for me. I feel like Barrio outworks him and tires him out and stops him late second, early third. That's your main card. Again, you're you're kind of relying on, like, what's the best fight? Oliveira and Daryush by a mile. Uh, it's, not the strong, it's not the strongest pay-per-view card you've ever seen. Uh, on the prelims, Nasruddin Imavov and Chris Curtis. Good fight here, actually. Um, Imavov, I believe, is coming off of a loss. He had a Sean Strickland. Um, that was a weird fight. That was a light heavyweight. Now, they took that on, like, that came together late. That's why it happened the way it did, at the weight class it did. Um, yeah, yeah, Imavov was supposed to fight Gastelum. Gastelum pulled out and, st I would have, I think he would have beat Gastelum. I thought Strickland was a much worse matchup for him. And they, that played out like Strickland beat him. Um, this is a tough fight for him as well. Uh, I feel I felt bad for Chris Curtis, man, after that Gastelum fight. He should have won that. Um, he really should have won that. <sighs> Imovov's a tough... Imovov's a tough assignment. Uh, Curtis might easily lose a decision here. But uh, Curtis and Strickland kind of train together. They're, they're kind of boys. If Strickland had a good read on Imovov, I think Strickland can impart wisdom to Chris Curtis about how to handle this. I'm, I'm going to lean towards Curtis. It might be a little bit sentimental on my part, but I'm going to lean towards Curtis. That's, that's, a, that's a solid prelim main event, actually, for a pay-per-view. It's better than a bunch of fights on the pay-per-view, but... Uh, women's flyweight, Miranda Maverick and Jasmine Jazdavicius. Eh, probably Maverick. Yeah, Maverick's on a two-fight winning streak. She should have beat Macy Barber. 
Now, Blanchfield beat her fair and square, but Maverick should have won that barber fight. Um, yeah, Maverick. Bantamweight, Ayman Zahabi, and Orichi Long. So, Ayman Zahabi last fought Ricky Tercios in July of last year. Terrible fight. It was a terrible fight. I remember that fight. Golly, what a joke. I've had sparring matches that were better than that one. Like, like me. And I am nobody's idea of a top-shelf anything. Um, Orichi Long. Two-fight winning streak. Um... Yeah, his two losses in the UFC were at flyweight, so bantamweight seems to be a better fit for him. He's only beaten Cameron Nelson, Jay Perrin. I'm going to pick Zahabi, but I don't feel good about it. At featherweight, Kyle Nelson and Blake Builder. I think this is Nelson. Nelson's had a rough go of it, though, man. He's had a rough go. I mean, his UFC record is what one four and am I really going to pick the guy who's one four and one? Coming off a draw with Duho Choi, that was a that was a weird card. Uh, so that was a weird fight. Like there was a there was a point deduction to Choi in what was it the third? It was a majority draw too. Um, did I have Choi? I might have had Choi winning that. Look up Blake Builder real fast. He's been in the UFC before. I, I recognize the name. So he's not he's not some debutante. Yeah, he beat Shane Young um, back in February. Undefeated. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Builder eight zero and one. If Nelson's going to get a win here, like this might be his job for Kyle Nelson. Like He really needs a win. He really needs the win. Uh, let's see. I believe next we have David Dvorak and Stefan Eckerg? Erkeg? Going with Erkeg um, for pronunciation. He is Australian? Yeah, he's Australian. I, I'm just going to have to wait until I see how that's pronounced. So I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name, sir. You know, off chance he ever hears this. Um, Urkeg is on a eight-fight winning streak. Um, was he? Is he replacing somebody? Yeah, he's replacing Matt Schnell. We're supposed to get Matt Schnell and David Dvorak. Um, right. That's, sorry, Schnell and Dvorak would have been a pretty good fight. I'm Dvorak's on a rough stretch here. He looked pretty darn good through his first three UFC fights and then ran into Matthews Nicolau and then Manel Kopp. Tough stretch of fights back to back. Lost both of those. He's in a two fight losing streak, but he looked pretty darn good before that. I'm going to pick him here. Uh, but he, he needs the win. He needs to get. Uh, look, Nicolau. Top five in the UFC, cop probably top five in the UFC, both certainly top ten. So, some t you know, the setbacks happen, but he's got to get back on the winning side here. I think he will, but <clears throat> done with that. 
And kicking everything off at strawweight, we have Diana Belbicha and Maria Oliveira. Um, Belbicha, one and three in the UFC, not great. And we have a loss to Gloria De Paula. Uh, Maria Oliveira had a couple of fights in the UFC, right? Three, she's one and two in the promotion. Um, losses to Tabitha Ricci and Vanessa Demopoulos. Has a win over Gloria De Paula. That's actually kind of tough. I'll lean towards Oliveira, but that's close. They're comparably ranked. If you look like worldwide rankings, they're comp they have comparable fights. 14 and 7 versus 13 and 6. So, yeah, I don't know. I'll go with, again, I'm going to go with Oliveira, but don't quite know how to feel about that one. Um, that's just a, one of those fights that, that's at a level where it could reasonably go either way. Um, we were supposed to have Khalil Roundtree and Chris Dawkins. Dawkins withdrew. We do not yet have a replacement for him. If Khalil Roundtree fights on the card, I don't mind picking him in the dark. But... Um, yeah, so if that happens to come about, I don't mind picking him in the dark. So we'll see. If they haven't announced someone else by now, they're probably not going to, but the UFC's thrown weirder stuff at us. And that's the event. So UFC 289 this Saturday in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. I will be covering it per usual. Stop by, say hello, appreciate it. Uh, yeah, all right, let's move on. Run through a couple of news items here. And hey, we might still get out of here in less than 90 minutes. Let's find out. So rumors have started swirling a little bit that, you know what? Because the, the latest season of The Ultimate Fighter started airing. I don't know. I don't care. I don't watch. But it's coached by Michael Chandler and Conor McGregor. Now, normally that means they would this would end with a fight between the two of them. However... Conor McGregor is still not in the USADA testing pool. We don't know if the UFC will give him one of their exemptions, which they can whenever they want, because they're the UFC. And we don't have a signed fight or a date or anything between Chandler and McGregor. And I'm other people have been positing this, and I think there's some merit to the question, so I'm going to ask it here. Does that fight actually happen? Let's not pretend that... I mean, we've got... In a, coming up fairly quickly, actually, Dustin Poirier and uh, Justin Gagey, too. If Dustin Poirier in particular wins and says, Connor, quit screwing around, the UFC will just bypass the theater of Chandler McGregor for the fourth fight between Poirier and McGregor, especially if Poirier says, sure, I'll put this fake little BMF belt on the line too. Like, they'll just go with that. Those two have a... Dude. <laughs> this, depending on what happens, it might wind up being that the defining rivalry of Conor McGregor's career when it's all said and done is not Jose Aldo or Khabib Nurmagomedov, it's actually Dustin Poirier. 
That that possibility exists. Just throwing that out there. I mean, right now I think it's Khabib because of not just what Khabib did to him, beating him in the cage, but like broke him. Whatever the giant payday Connor got from the Mayweather fight did to him was compounded by not just Khabib beating him, but Khabib then getting to retire on his own terms. I haven't watched the... There's a uh, documentary out on Connor on Netflix right now. Again, I haven't watched it, but I've seen the clips that were floating around. And one of the clips I saw was Connor's reaction to Khabib's retirement. If you thought that watching, um, you could see when uh, Dana White told Daniel Cormier that John Jones had the uh, positive test ahead of their second fight, the one where Anderson Silva flew in on like day's notice and replaced him. Um, you can see Cormier go through like the five stages of grief in the course of this like two minute clip. Connor goes through so many of those same things. Like the the depression hits pretty fast. The denial. Uh, it's it's a little bit fascinating. I might have to make time for the documentary, but um, it, it just might be that between being Poirier was Connor's ticket to legitimization in the UFC. Like, when he beat Poirier the way he did, that was the stamp. Like, no, this guy's legit. Then when Poirier knocked him out in their rematch, that that broke something in Connor. Like, that was when he stopped trying to be the nice guy again, when he kind of fell off the rails. And their their third fight, like, Poirier was winning that thing anyway before the injury. Not that Connor had no success in that one, but that was going Poirier's way. And then he has that catastrophic injury. Dude, he might not even still be fully over that injury. Like, that was a bad... Most people, if they break their leg like that, like, that messes you up for life. So, I don't know. But at this point, like, I would... If you were to ask me right now to lay odds, is it more likely that McGregor and Chandler happens or doesn't happen? I might say it's more likely it doesn't at this point. Like, there's still a giant number of unknowns, and we're not going to know anything particular until the UFC. Here's the thing. If the UFC comes out publicly and says, no, we will not provide Conor McGregor with one of the, with an exemption. He must be in the pool, the testing pool, for the same amount of time as anyone else coming back. That fight's not happening this year, and I would bet it's not happening at all. But that's kind of the big thing we don't know the answer to at the moment is what's well, what the UFC is going to do there or you know if Con- or what's going on with Connor I mean nobody knows what's going on with that guy he was partying in Monaco enjoying the Grand Prix the like a couple of weeks ago and I'm not dude I'm not mad at the guy for living his life in the general sense like you made a boatload of money enjoy life like, go ahead but if you're <laughs> If that's the kind of stuff you want to do, you can't pretend that you're going to go in there and fight Michael Chandler with any reasonable chance of success either. So, um, all right, Last thing I want to talk on briefly, then we'll check Twitter for anything crazy. Um, so Dana White got asked about 
So remember a couple, of, it might have been last week when Dana White did the we don't do gimmick fights here like Francis Ngannou and Anthony Joshua. Now he's out here saying, yeah, we will really try to make Tyson Fury versus John Jones. I would like to take this opportunity to once again express my disappointment at the vast majority of MMA media. Um, because, of course, no one brought out how stupid this is. But Dennis, yeah, we want to have that fight in the cage. Tyson Fury's not going to fight John Jones in a cage. Why would he? You're not going to pay him enough. Here's the thing. If Tyson Fury were to fight you know, Francis Ngannou or John Jones or whoever in a boxing match, he's going to get a 20 to $30 million payday for that, somewhere in that vicinity. Right? Like, 20 might be on the low end there, but... Like, 20... That seems like the minimum. He's going to get $20 million for that fight. Kind of minimum. You, UFC, have not paid $20 million collectively to, like... We could probably take the last, like, eight fight nights combined and you haven't paid $20 million. Like, Canelo... So this is as a brief thing. Like, Canelo's been... Ta- there's been some talk about what Sal Canelo Alvarez is going to do next. And the David Benavidez camp is saying, like, we're going to offer him, like, $50 million. Somewhere in that vicinity. Like, some of his options... His options range from, like, high 30... There's one in the high 30s, I forget the fighter. One in the mid 40s, and then something like near the 50s. Canelo Alvarez is going to make more in his next fight than probably half the entire UFC roster for last year combined. But you're going to offer... They're not going to do... This is one of the reasons they won't do it. They won't throw... 15, 20 million dollars at Tyson Fury to fight in a cage because one, you're going to have to pay John Jones pretty much the same. Two, you're just, every other, like, the UFC relationship with the fighters is perpetually on this weird precipice of peril. The thing is, a lot of us on the outside keep looking at, oh, this is the thing that's going to tip things over. This is the, and that precipice is a lot further away than most of us ever thought possible. Like, the number of fighters out there right now who are still actively pushing back on no, we're fairly paid, when we know you guys are making 13% rev rev split on a company that's going to make $400 million in profit this year. I mean, you are advocating against your own interests in real time. So you'd think that, again, some of these financial things coming out, that would have done it. Nope. You'd think their preferential treatment of certain fighters or the way they've treated champions. Nope. Like, wherever, there is some line somewhere that the UFC is going to push the bulk of its fighters across and they're finally going to say no more. I don't know where it is. I really don't. But I do have to imagine that throwing $20 million at just Tyson Fury to try and get... Again, this fight's never going to happen. But that's the kind of money we'd be talking about. You would be cutting a check to Tyson Fury for $20 million. You'd probably get pay-per-view points. 
you would be cutting a check to John Jones for somewhere in that somewhere in that same vicinity. Like you would have to pay him fifteen to twenty million. And one, you would then have to tell John Jones his next fight, yeah, you're back to whatever we were paying you before. Two, you'd have to look at the entire rest of your roster and then pretend, no, we can't do this for you. We could do this for a one-off, but don't you see how much we're hurting financially? Even though we're a billion-dollar generate, we generate over a billion dollars in revenue, 300 million in profit, uh, 350 some odd million in profit last year, 400 million this year. Probably going to be half a billion in pure profit in the next two years. But we can't afford to. If they, if the UFC ever admits in some kind of real way how much they could pay, that might be the thing that does it. Then again, I mean, I've said this about other stuff before, and it just, I don't know, man. That line exists. It is somewhere. I don't know exactly where it is. It's not where I thought it was. But that line exists, and that might be one of the things that does it. So Dana White talking nonsense per usual. All right. Um, that's all I've got written down. Let's check Twitter, and then we'll get out of here if nothing crazy has happened. Alrighty. Nope. So what do we got for plugs this week? Um, last week, myself, Mark Radulich, and Alexis Hayner reviewed The Little Mermaid, the live-action Disney remake, and we tore it apart, because it sucks. It's, it's a terrible movie. Uh, this week, the usual spate of coverage, so MLW Fusion on Thursday, WWE SmackDown on Friday, the UFC event on Saturday. On the podcast side of things, this Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern, myself, Mark Radulich, and Alexis Hayner will be reviewing... Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I'm going to say something here that I feel compelled. On the off chance, you, if you haven't seen this movie yet, here's the only thing I'm going to say about it. And this isn't really a spoiler. This is part one. There should be a big part one here. And I disagree with where they chose to cut. There was nothing in the marketing indicating this was part one. If you went into this movie thinking, I'm going to see a full movie, you don't. You see part one of basically a two-part movie, and the next part's going to come out next year. Uh, I say that because I take issues with, I have issues with the ethics of the marketing. If this is what you're going to do, you should be telling people before they spend money on it. My opinion. That's not, so there's that. That's If you want my opinion on the movie itself and the craft thereof, listen to Damn You Hollywood. Uh, so that's what we will have Tuesday. That's, yeah, that's what I got this week. All right, we'll be back here next week to review UFC 289. And we will preview UFC on ESPN 47 when Marvin Vittori fights Jared Cannonier in a warehouse in Vegas in front of 20 people. That is a big card. Holy crap. Let me I'm not going to go over this, but hang on. How many fights are here? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Are we going 15, really? Oh, that's going to go... Like I'm going to record the podcast, and I'll still be covering this at the same time. Stop that. It's too many. Have we done this enough? 
It's a mistake. How's the card itself look, actually? Yeah. I'm going with the yeah. I don't hate Mar I don't hate Victorian Cannoneer. Armin Soyuki and Joachim Silva is a pretty good fight. Don't really care about Petrosian. Pat Sabatini. Curious if he can start turning the corner. Lonnie Barcelos and Miles Johns is actually pretty good. That's a pretty good fight. Some Salikov and Nicholas Dalby might be okay. They might also suck. That's a feast or famine fight. That's either going to be a banger or it's going to suck. Not a whole lot of in between there. All right, full preview next week. 15 fights. Lord, give me strength and constitution to sit through that. All right, that's it for me, though. Thank you very, very much for listening, as always. I appreciate the heck out of you guys and all you do for the show. So thank you, as always, very, very much. All right. Until next time, stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.